HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dana Callen, and you are listening to a special episode of Speaking Broadly. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman on her path to success, the victories and the challenges, things that can inspire all of us. Today, I am at Paws Up Resort in Montana um, with a fly fishing expert, a spectacular baker, a woman with a cookbook in the works. It is the great and one and only Kelly Fields. Hey, Kelly. Hello. It's <laughs> a lot of pressure. I, I guess I should, should I have made it like a lot more modest. No, fly fishing expert is sort of, you know. That's a good place to start, first. right? Yeah, that's yeah. good. I right did now. put that first. You did. That's because we're in Montana, and I, I just saw that picture of you, the huge smile mm-hmm. with it looked like a speckled trout. How'd I do? Pretty good. Yeah? What brown was it trout. actually? It was a brown trout. Yeah, brown, brown trout. Okay. So, um, Kelly is actually not best known for um, her fishing prowess. She's best known as a pastry chef and for her restaurant in New Orleans called Willa Jean. And if you've ever had her pastry, it is uh, delectable and flaky and generous. And I'm not going to call you flaky, but I'm going to call no. you generous. All right, I'll take that. <laughs> I can be flaky. I can own that. Uh, I'm inspired reading your story, thinking of all of the women you've paid tribute to throughout your life and your career. And I want to start with your grandma. Okay. Um, That's a good place to start. Because she's sassy and she doesn't cook. Yeah, no, she's, she was a terrible cook. And I just, I love that notion. I come from a long line of non-cooks, so I kind of identify, except I ended up... Um, in, food. In, in a different camp. Sure. Like you cook, I eat. Yeah. So um, tell me about your grandmother and um, why she is like such a great inspiration. So my grandmother was, um, my, my grandfather died when I was very young. I, d- I have very few memories of him. Um, so she was always this single, sassy woman living alone, making it on her own. And um, she'd sit at the car. She was a like world-renowned bridge player. So no kidding. she'd always sit at the kitchen table and just play cards and teach me to play cards and um, she was a real smart ass. And like, I saw that as a young child, especially to my dad. And I always really 
appreciated that about her. <laughs> <laughs> Did it give you license to be a smart yeah, ass oh, too? Yeah, 100%. Uh-huh. Um, so even when she wasn't visiting and I still tried to be sort of sarcastic to my father, he would start calling me Willa Jean Jr. And so that was my nickname most of my life because um, I, I get a little sass in me too. And if, if there's anywhere my personality comes from, it's from my grandmother. Um, and so when I got older and I was in high school and having a lot of difficulty with my father in particular, um, you know, like coming out of the closet as a young kid and living in the Bible Belt and oh, that sounds sort really of, hard. Yeah, rebelling against everything that his ideals are. Um, she was really a, like stepped in and was a champion for me and sort of like convinced my dad that I'm going to go do whatever I'm going to do and hopefully I'll be great at it. And that's his role is to, to only support me, uh, which is what she did like to the very end and beyond. Actually, she still does. And beyond. Do yeah. you feel her, her presence with you? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And like in what way? Um, Especially when I was opening the restaurant, I felt like she was getting a real kick out of what was happening. I um, I still giggle at the fact that if she were alive to see my restaurant, and if she had known the name, she would have talked me out of it and told me it was the <laughs> dumbest thing I could ever do. Because it's named um, after her. Yeah, so because she yeah. never like she never wanted to be the center of attention, and she she was never celebrated the way she deserved to be. Um, and the first time since she passed away that the whole side of the family got together was like two days before I opened the restaurant. They came and I have this big, long family table in the middle of the restaurant and they filled it and we fed them. And that was the first meal we ever, we ever served. So it was awesome. What a beautiful way to begin. Yeah. Was she able to convince your father to be accepting of your choices, um, personal and otherwise I think it took a long I think it took her passing to for him to really he didn't I don't think he understood how close we were and when she got really sick he made it up there before I was able and he found all that like I wrote her letters like twice a week and she wrote me letters and she had like 34 messages saved on her answering machine because those were those days um and I think 30 of them were from me and he like he got it and from the time of her passing to the time that I opened that restaurant, like a lot of things shifted for us. So we're, I wish he was here right now, actually. So, um, you wish he was here because, because I would like to go fishing with my dad. Is that right? Is is that where your love of fishing comes from? Um, well, we grew, I grew up in Charleston, so we lived on the water. So, um, I would go, I went fishing almost every day. So fishing or crabbing or, um, shrimping or something like that because I had to cook dinner for my family that was my one of my chores growing up so and you had two siblings and you each had that chore it mm-hmm. seems like you they, the chores were not distributed like someone took out the garbage and somebody no, else made we beds rotated you all just it. made yeah. dinner yeah um, we rotated so I would I would swap the cleaning for the cooking because I always enjoyed it um and my my sister in particular I have an older sister um didn't enjoy it and she was terrible at it so (laughs) I would switch with her and then my younger brother would switch with me because I had switched with her because that meant nobody had to eat whatever she attempted to make so (laughs) I cooked dinner most nights and I so I have this vision of you as a little kid Mm -hmm. going and putting out your crab traps I mean was life as idyllic as that sounds or were there complexities that that doesn't even begin to touch uh, I mean, a little bit of both. Like, I did not appreciate it until much, much later, until I realized, like, this was a job, and I could pull from, especially when I opened Willa Jean, and all of a sudden, like, savory food, like, what am I doing? Like, I don't know how to do that in a restaurant, and I pulled from that, because I had actually been practicing my entire life without realizing it, um, but I look back at it as sort of idyllic, like, there were a lot of complexities going on, but... Um, in, in hindsight, it was really the best way to grow up. And um, and as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, you you learned you learned a lot because you have made the guides here jealous yes. of with the number of fish you caught. I've gotten very lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
Your mother also seems to have been uh, an inspiration because mm-hmm. she was a, a great baker. She, yeah, she or still is. is a great baker. Yeah, she she um, has more than one recipe um, on my menu at Willa Jean, and more than one recipe in my upcoming cookbook. My mom's whole side of the family were phenomenal bakers. Do you think that it's like genetic? Is it in your fingers? This baking thing? I think it's just a intuition you have or you don't. And I think, I think you can learn it, but I've never been in the position where I had to like adapt myself. Like it always just was something I did. So I don't, I don't know how one learns it. Interesting. But you do know how to teach it. Today, um, we did a class with you and I took so many notes and, um, this is random and often on speaking broadly, we don't talk about cooking technique, but I'm just going to pause here (laughs) (laughs) because we were making, uh, or you were making a burrata and buttered crab um tart with caviar on top Mm -hmm. and um okay people just like here's some really quick tips there is such a thing as a perforated ring so that if you are making a tart you can put it inside the perforated ring and then um it toasts evenly so i learned that today Mm -hmm. I learned that if you want to make a tart you should um shave your cold butter and then put it in the freezer Mm -hmm. Right. Why am I doing that? Um, because you work the pie dough far less than you would if you were doing cho- like the whole like biscuit method. Cutting in the butter is so much like it's just done. Yeah, it's it's like chunks versus shavings, and that would yep. be so much better for me because I kind of give up with the chunks. Sure. Um, that was great. And then I learned that you're supposed to put uh, vinegar um, it, with the flour. You put vinegar in your pie dough at the end with the cold water or whatever liquid you're using, and it helps tenderize. Okay. That was new to me, and I'm like, okay, so that was like, and um, as you know, I have read hundreds of pie dough recipes, hundreds, and I've never learned that in any case. So you're a great teacher, and your mom seems like she didn't need to teach you, so you just... No, we just did. Do you have any recollection of what the first thing you might have made? No, my first real baking recollection was, well, we made cookies all the time, but my mom made carrot cake, and I had to be like seven and I ended up on the floor crying and screaming because vegetables don't go in cake. <laughs> and so that's my first really vivid, like, baking memory. And then, like, how I was proven wrong once I got to taste it. And, like, that sort of opened up a, a whole world for me. Do you believe in, like, zucchini bread? Like, oh, how, yeah. how far do you go with I go vegetables? All the way. Okay. You go all, all the way. way. Yeah. I'll do anything. I'll try anything once. Like a rutabaga? Yeah, I've done like turnip, uh, turnip desserts, like with turnip cakes and coffee, like that pairs really well with coffee. And um, I, I mean, I will try anything. And uh, were you sort of at your mother's apron strings baking with her? Like, was she? Yeah, yeah. She baked like every weekend. So like, let's say every third weekend, I would pay attention to what she was doing. And what are the dishes? What are the uh, recipes of hers that are in the book? Um, in the book, she has. Uh, a Mississippi mud cake that I remember like she would make like every other weekend and she always stored cakes in the microwave because we never used it for anything else so (laughs) like better than shoes yeah (laughs) and so I remember I remember like sneaking in and um, like cutting little slivers all the time and so some people, like in my house, mm-hmm. um, we would be like drinking the vodka and filling it with water. Mm-hmm. You're going and taking the mud. No, we're sitting on the cake. Well, I was, a, I was a very competitive swimmer, like all the way through school. And I spent six hours in the water every day. And so like my diet was very watched by my swim coach and this and that. And um, Mississippi mud cake was not on that list of things approved. <laughs> so I was always But the vegetables sneaking. in the carrot cake. Yeah, yeah. We could get around it. Um, but she makes a chocolate peanut butter, like custard pie that has a crust that mimics the icing of German chocolate cake, but like it's buttery and she like puts it on top and toast it. And like my dad and I would get in like literal fights, like sneaking in the middle of the night to go steal that pie out of the fridge. So (laughs) that's, that's to me is like the North star of desserts. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so that's your, is it your down hand, hands down favorite? Yeah. I've been, I've tried for 20 years to figure out how to make that the way my mom does. Oh, what do you think is missing? I don't, maybe just her making it, you know, something always tastes better when somebody else makes it. So. <laughs> and 
And then just continuing along the line of these inspiring women, um, you worked with Susan Spicer in New Orleans. So you grew up in um, Charleston, but then you at some point moved to New Orleans. I moved to New Orleans in 1996. And so what were you doing with Susan? Um, Susan had, at that time, a business called Spice Inc., and so it was like way ahead of it. It was the '90s, and it was this like gourmet shop at a bakery. It had a cheese shop. It had like barrels of um, olive oil, like specialty olive oils. You, it was a place where you could buy cocoa nibs. <laughs> like in the '90s, wow! Like that is the Food Network was just sort of like up and coming. And I remember I called to um, ask how to apply for a job, and she answered the phone at the spot, and I was just like, "What's happening?" Like it was mind blowing to me. But it's also exactly who she is. Um, so she had a big classroom kitchen. She had a pastry shop. She had breads baked every day. So I started in pastry. Um, and I would get to work at 3 a.m., do all the pastry, and then I had a real interest in bread. So at, like, 1 in the afternoon, I'd switch over, clock out, and learn bread from the woman who happened to live across the street from me, just to learn it. So um, Overachiever much? Sometimes. 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 Yeah. And did she have a restaurant at that time? She had Bayona. She had Bayona. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was, indeed, so far ahead, because now when we talk about um, you know, restaurants, everybody has like a cafe part and a, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. merch part. And yeah, this was like 1998. Wow. Yeah. And what do you feel like you learned the most from her? Cause I mean, it seems like you learned a lot just by observing, mm-hmm. but what did she teach you? Well, she taught me to observe and she's sort of that, that is the first professional kitchen I'd ever walked in, better yet worked in. And, um, sort of the idea that like everybody around you is somebody you can learn from. Like she was learning from people. I would like, we were all exchanging information and it wasn't this like tight guarded territorial sort of thing. It was like, here's everything we know. Like what you know makes me better. What I know makes you better. Like that sort of environment was like astounding to me. And, um, unusual to this day. Surely. Actually. And not, you know, not the course of things for... Yeah, it's unlike anywhere I work between now and then. Right, so. <laughs> <laughs> except your own place where yeah. you strive for those goals. Like Absolutely. We've, we've talked about it in the past. Yeah. That actually almost exactly describes mm-hmm. how you want to run your yep. kitchen and your restaurant. That's, so that's really interesting to me. And what was the bridge? Like, was there a time that you thought you would do something else and then you turned to Yeah, I, um, I was studying chemistry. I thought I was going to go to med school. Um, I had a friend, I made a friend in New Orleans whose parents owned a bakery and they needed help. So I went in to help them. And like I said, it was when this food network was coming off and this and that. And, um, I fell in love with it immediately. Like that night I was like, this, I want to do this. Like people get paid to do this. I want to do it. And, um, my parents weren't as receptive as my grandmother was. My grandma's like, you found something you love, do it. Like do it. So it's it, so great to have that person who then like lodges in your brain, yeah. you know, telling you you can do it yep. as opposed to your parents are like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And do you know what you're doing? And yeah. I don't know. What were your parents saying to you? I think my parents, I think they were just like most people in their, like that wasn't a career choice. That was like a default that you did to get to where you're going or like how you paid your way through college, whatever, you know, whatever that was. But it wasn't a career where you're going to make a like really good living and like get somewhere right and they came around fine yeah it took a little took a, my mom my mom did not take so long my dad took a little bit longer um i don't think he he really grasped what the food industry was at that point and a couple of years it was probably six years ago he came to visit and i put him to work and it was like the new orleans wine and food festival and so I made him go work events with me. And he was just like, like it blew his mind. And now, now he gets it. Now he's wildly supportive. What an interesting way to make someone understand mm-hmm. what your world really is. To right. make them come be by your side yep. and, you know, exist through it. Yep. Um, and then Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, Katrina yep. came through and that knocked you off well, it knocked New Orleans on its mm-hmm. butt, and um, and you left, yeah. and you went traveling. I did. Well, I spent um, almost I spent some time in Asheville, sort of like getting my feet on the ground, figuring out what's happening. Um, I ended up working as a pastry chef on the Biltmore Estate. 
Oh, how beautiful. Just, yeah, it was great. It's a great property. It was a great... I don't like, know how good the food is, recovery but... Recovery zone. Yeah. Um, did, it, did it feel like that? Like, what did Katrina mean to you? Um, it was sort of... We didn't understand how bad it was until it was that bad. Mm. Um, I was not going to evacuate. I left during the storm. I mean, the guy that was my roommate at the time, like, drove through it. Wow. And we Were went you to scared? F- yeah, it was not a pleasant drive. Yeah, it seems like I'd be... T- I mean, I would be terrified. <laughs> Um, it took us 16 hours to go, uh, almost 300 miles, just under 300 miles, Mm. uh, to my uncle's house. And we thought we were going to like stay there for three days and then we go home and then we're going to go home. And then the, you know, the levee, we sat there and watched the levees break and, you know, we thought everything was fine. We woke up the next morning and we're like, Oh yeah. And so we, where did we go after that? We went to Charleston and then my mom had just moved up towards Asheville, North Carolina, so I went there and sort of um, reset and sort of figured out what's happening, what's going to happen, how long is it going to take, and what should I do. And did you have any feeling like, my, is it an opportunity, like I could change my life completely, or this is just terrifying, like, you know, everything I know is gone, like, what was your... It was your... back and forth between <laughs> those two very things, it's like, oh, now I can go do whatever, like, what have I not done that I want to be doing, and this, or like... But what am I going to do? And um, I ended up, you know, I stayed in Asheville for a little bit. And then I started traveling. And I went, my first trip was, I landed in Rome and worked my way all the way to Egypt. And, you know, I had friends along the way I was visiting. And, you know, couchsurfing.com became a thing at that point. (laughs) Wolfing was a thing at that, I think it's still a thing. Did you go into a farm and work at the farm? Mm -hmm. Yep, I did that. And, um just sort of meandered my way through and then I came home and packed my bags and moved to San- I drove cross country to San Francisco and but what was it like like I'm just curious because you had lived in the south pretty much your mm-hmm. whole life right and you were close to family or close enough to family mm-hmm. and you really were doing something that you knew and loved mm-hmm. what was it like to be untethered I was still doing things that I knew and that I loved. I see. So you were cooking all and along the way. I sort of, yeah, I was cooking and whether that was in like a friend's restaurant or, you know, in somebody's house and like the, the gift of sharing food and sharing cooking with people is absolutely universal is what I learned. But I sort of thrive in solitude and that's what I learned more than anything is how much like being quiet and just sort of like again, observing and like learning and seeing and, you know, tasting things that grow together in Israel that I would never see in the South. Like it's, it's, everything is learning. And do you feel like that trip, it lodged in the back of your brain and it comes out at Willa Jean? Sure. Yeah. It always sneaks in. Um, (laughs) Like all of the experiences like sneak in, like my time in New Zealand, like the food's really great in certain places, but like learning how to live in a van and like cook on the you know, cook on a little burner in a, in a windstorm. Like you learn how to sort of like over it. Like I know how to do that in a restaurant. Like if power goes out, I can still cook. Like just little things you never think about what you're learning or how you're going to use it in the future. Like that's what I love about it. And you continue to travel, maybe not like to Egypt, but no, um, not anytime recently. No, no, I went to Paris last year and the year before I went and spent two weeks in Iceland and lived in a van and cooked out of the back of the van and did the ring road. And there's a hidden ice cream, like an ice cream trail in Iceland, like certain barns. We'll talk about that later. I, I'm, but I I'm ate fascinated. all the ice cream. <laughs> I didn't know that there was an ice cream trail. Yeah. yeah a hidden ice cream, ice cream trail? Mm-hmm. Because they have spectacular milk. Spectacular. And they have good ice. Yep. Being Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, Huh. What's this? I mean, do they make a different kind of ice cream than... No, it's just like you're literally eating ice cream with the cow that just gave you the milk. And it's just... I mean, you don't get that very many And also, you don't have someone going, oh my God, it's a single utter ice cream. Yeah. Right? right. But it is. Thank God. And you're like, oh, exactly. Thank God. It's not being marketed to me as a single it's utter... It's a better time, baby. ice cream. Yeah. And, um, and then you came in... And when you were in San Francisco, um, you worked with... Shana Leiden? Yeah, I worked. So um, I looked up all these, you know, all, all the places there were to work in San Francisco, and Shuna was working Shuna. on a new project that hadn't opened yet. And I sort of like, do it, like I had been an Eggbeater reader. Her blog is Eggbeater. Um, and 
really dove into her history and like she had the resume I wanted and like she had worked at Citizen Cake she worked at the French Laundry she opened Bouchon she worked for Claudia at uh, Gramercy Tavern Claudia Fleming um, great pastry chef the best literally the best I love her um, and so I naturally wanted to go work for her and she in our interview said you've been a pastry chef why do you want to work for anyone and I was like because I haven't been an employee and I need to know what that feels like and she hired me on the spot. So. And what did you mean when you said that? Like I was, I had in every position, every job I'd had was propelled into some leadership role without the, I like really understanding or yeah. knowledge or guidance of what that meant um, or the impact that you have on people. And I needed, and I sort of knew that I had a lot to learn in that because it's not something they teach you at culinary school. You don't even talk about it. Um, it seems like that needs to change if it but, hasn't already. Yeah, it really does. Um, and so I needed to understand what leadership looked like and what like strong, like s- strong, stubborn leadership looked like in the best way. And Shuna is so disciplined and so precise and like maniacal about detail that like it was the hardest job I've ever had. Because she's so demanding. Yeah. And you thought it was fair, so it made it even Yeah, better. I mean, it made me question what I was doing and why I was doing it, and maybe the, should I be doing it, and maybe is there something else that would be easier or that I'd be better at, or... Because she finds every little, every little thing, every little thing. And it's, I'm sure you felt like you are a lot better at the end. Oh, 100%. Like, the things that she taught me in our time working together still, like, still creep up, and I'm like... <gasps> that's what she meant by that. Or I'll say something and be like, oh, that was just Shuna. Like, <laughs> hey, Shuna, yeah, thanks for putting that yeah, in there. Exactly. I mean, she she is a real inspiration. And the, the way she sees the world and the way she approaches food is so different than how I do. So, like, to even meet in the middle makes me, like, a totally, I hope, a better pastry chef. And how do you describe the differences between the two? She's very... She's very wickedly smart and approaches food in a way that's really really thoughtful and intentional and like here are the flavors I want to put on a plate how are we going to do it I'm more of a like I can't think about food I just need to get in the kitchen give me some things I'll cook you something and so to do that and I also like concentrate only on like three maybe four four flavors in a thing and she is, she wants to really highlight and do a lot of things. And it took a lot of adjustment for me to learn what that looked like and how to even approach that. And maybe even to appreciate it. Cause, Surely. Um, although maybe at the time it brought up more questions in your own mind about maybe what I'm doing is too simple. Maybe it's right. not worthy. Mm-hmm. But of I course, still do that in my mind. of course, it's the most worthy thing. Mm-hmm. In I'm fact, learning. all that, all that simplicity. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back we're going to talk about uh, New Orleans Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion Since the early 1900s Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers and family tradition They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kottbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Mon, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Sari Kamen. And I'm Leah Kurtz. And together we host Food Without Borders here on HRN. Immigrants make our food system vibrant, diverse, and delicious. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about how food connects them to their past, as we explore what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. today. You can find Food Without Borders wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. 
This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, a special episode from Montana. I am uh, in a treetop in a mountain in Montana, and joining me today is Kelly Fields, an extraordinary um, chef, pastry chef, and the owner of Willa Jean, which is a restaurant that you absolutely have to go to in New Orleans. We were just talking about all the things that you learned um, from Shuna. Is that how she pronounced it? Yeah. Shuna. It's just so you guys know, it's S-H-U-N-A, which is why I mispronounced it. Um, and so then you were in San Francisco. You have no, no fear of moving, apparently. No. no. <laughs> Whatsoever. And is that, like, do you make friends easily? Does that solitude um, mean that you're kind of happy anywhere because you're happy yeah. with yourself? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I think I easily make friends. Um, my friends are so dear to me. They're like few, but they're like quantity over quality. Um, I think the other way. Quality, quality over quantity. Yeah. Quality. Okay. You're going for quality first. Yeah. That's what I was trying for. Great, great A friends. Um, yeah, my friends are the best friends and, um, but I can get along with most people, I think. So, um, how long were you in San Francisco? Uh, almost three years. And there then, was a there was a period of time I spent in Edinburgh in between the, in in the middle of that um, in Scotland, learning about Scottish cuisine and their sort of um, farm to table movement. It's not really a movement; it's the way they've always been and the way they will always be, and how it makes us look like real idiots <laughs> as <laughs> Americans and our food system and. You know, I spent a lot of time over there just, like, in awe of how they live and how they eat and how they, like, approach food and care about food. And do you bring that into your everyday today? I try to, yeah. And like, what, what does that mean aside from, you know, things that are fresh from the ground and probably not doing too much with them? What's that? And it's also, like, using, like, celebrating what's around you. And, you know, even at Willa Jean, I say we're celebrating the South as a sense of place without being with really trying not to be cliche about it because we celebrate like what we're able to get and yeah, it's Southern food or it's, uh, you know, Creole or there's a lot of low country influence from growing up in Charleston, but we're, we're trying to highlight exactly what's come from right around us without like flexing any ego into it. And the Scottish are very good at that. Huh? The no ego part. Yeah. Um, what do you think the role of ego is in cooking? Um, I think it really depends on the chef. Like I am blown away and swept off my feet by chefs who demonstrate restraint more than anything. Like it's something in the past couple of years I've really like noticed that I'm drawn to. And, you know, chefs like, like Missy Robbins at Lilia is just like her cooking is phenomenal, but her restraint is like mind-blowing and restraint in what way like she lets things be what they are and just ensures that anything she does to it just like gives it a brighter light to shine in and it's like mind-blowing to me how how wonderful that is and do you think that it comes from some essential confidence like that i mean for whatever reason like either the ingredients can speak for themselves or she doesn't want to talk over them yes both both (laughs) like she i mean with her in particular like even just like you know her vegetables at missy i love her vegetables i mean even her vegetables at lilia i don't want to alienate one over the other but (laughs) like the, the the artichoke like there's not a more simple artichoke available in the describe how it's prepared um it's just like breadcrumbs lemon juice olive oil salt and it's just whole on a plate that's what i grew up and artichokes are one of my like you know 15 favorite foods yeah and exactly that way and i grew up with i mean just a a boiled artichoke but just kind of like that Mm -hmm. she kicks it up a notch yeah she just cooks it as perfectly as the artichoke was when it was picked and just like every little detail is just simply and perfectly done and I just, there's so much grace in that, that I just, I'm in awe of her every time I eat at her restaurants. So you came back to New Orleans at some point? To- yeah, I came back to New Orleans after I'd spent months in New Zealand, also again, 
um, farming and picking fruits and doing horseback ride tours and whatever, whatever odd job I could get. How um, do you feel about the, like, difference to you personally between doing the odd jobs and the sort of, you know, being in the back of a van uh-huh. and being responsible for like a team. And I mean, you've worked in, you know, big restaurant groups mm-hmm. and now you have your own restaurant, which is smaller. There's such different mindsets. Yeah. I find that I have a, th- regardless of where I am, I have a three-year itch. Like every three years I have to go do something that's sort of like far removed from you know, like Willa Jean, like Willa Jean turned three. I went to Iceland for two weeks and lived in a van and like didn't have cell phone, didn't have anything and just like was there and sort of like recalibrated myself to who I am in the world and then go back and do it again. And in if you're recalibrating, what are you recalibrating from to, do you feel? Like what knocks you off center if something does? I just think the, I feel myself like I get tense in every single way, like like physically, mentally, like, and I just get in this mode where I'm not really absorbing or like, I'm just trying to find solutions to everything that's going wrong or be proactive about things that I don't want to go wrong. And it's just like, when I work, I work really hard and I work like a hundred percent and learn, I'm learning how to do that more, like draw the boundary more day by day. But, um, every three years I have to sort of remove myself and like, let it go. And then learn again, like, these are the things I can control. These are the things I'm wasting my time and my energy on. Like, and it's just a lot of, like, mental, like, sort of, like, wash out. It's great that you found a way to do that, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's hard to do. It is. It's, it's hard to come back clean, yeah. you know, with, an, like, a clear and open mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it's a great thing to try to practice every day. But every day when you're walking in to your own restaurant and people are calling out sick and the walk-ins broken mm-hmm. the damn plumbing yeah plumbing it's the air conditioner everything right the bread ovens on fire like everything <laughs> it just those things <laughs> just things happen. happen but i still i walk in every day and i always walk in the front door and i'm like every day i'm almost like the restaurant's almost four years old and every day i'm surprised I'm like, who are these people? They're coming, they're paying for food. Like, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. <laughs> like four years in, I'm still like, oh, what? Like every day it's like Christmas morning. What um, a wonderful feeling yeah. to have. Um, you, you worked for a time, uh, when you came back to New Orleans, you worked for a time with uh, John Bash, who hired you as a pastry chef yes did he hire you to oversee all of his restaurants at first or uh no so i started originally working at august in 2002 before the storm Uh. so i worked for three and a half years the storm hit and then i disappeared for five years or so and i came back to august and i came back to august because michael galata was the chef de cuisine at that time and he wrote me an email and i read it in new zealand and he's like i'm now the chef at august this is what I want for it. I can't do it without you. And so Michael's like my brother. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to like, I'll be there when I can be there. But like, I'm in the middle of doing something for me. And so I went back to August in like May of 2010. um, And sort of put all my time and attention to that. And in those five years, that restaurant group exploded and became giant. So I started, you know, helping this restaurant out, doing this menu. We're going to open this restaurant over here, write a menu, like hiring staff, writing menus, writing recipes, dialing everything in. I've been at every restaurant opening for that group. Um, And so at one point I had 19 active dessert menus in the company. And And had you written most of those? Yeah, all of them. All all of of them. them. There was one restaurant I was not responsible for. That sounds like a lot of recipe development. It is. And a lot of training. Yes. And a lot of thankfully, like the cool, the really cool thing about that job is it was, we were opening restaurants in all the places I had been traveling since I started cooking. So like when, you know, we opened this restaurant and it's pulling from like when I spent time in, you know. Israel, like Shia. Yeah. Does that count? Yep. Yeah. So like Israel was still pretty, pretty fresh and like. That's an amazing, like, their approach to food and their, like, whole diet. Like, it's really incredible. And, like, 
even how they approach dessert and like the you know not having anything sweet really celebrating your fruits and you know this and that like to have that challenge to be that creative on that scale with that many different personality chefs in kitchens that all ran differently like i loved it i really loved it there were a couple of restaurants um, i had my favorites i'll say that <laughs> and now you have one yes thank um, god but if you loved the 19, mm-hmm. are there things you miss about being able to work on such a big scale? No. Because Willie Jean is such a bigger scale than anything I could have ever conceptualized. And it's all yours. Yeah. But I mean, I, that's, that being yeah. a difference, right? Yeah. Because instead of doing a piece of the program, which is the, right. the pastry. And now I'm like, well, do I need to make cookies or do I need to order high chairs or like, you know, like it's a, it's. It is equal challenge to 19 minutes. Right, because you're yeah. the business owner piece of it yep. just is, um, it's enormous. It's massive. But you were, you were working for uh, John, who, um, you know, end up being thrown out of his restaurant group because of me, the Me Too movement and his actions. Um, and did that send your life into chaos? Um, on a professional level, it did not. On a personal level, absolutely. That's so interesting. I would have almost thought the reverse. No, I mean, you know, in the articles and, you know, in who I am as a professional and how I, like, developed that kitchen and, you know, learning from my own mistakes of watching and doing, um, Willa Jean was a bubble in the world of that restaurant group. And um, I feel like everybody knows that. And they did at the time. And my employees know that. And they felt really... Protected by you. Yeah. Not just protected, but like confident in who we are and Mm -hmm. what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, But personally, it was, you know, it was a lot of emotional labor to figure out like, where do I stand? What, What did I not see? What did I see and not realize that I saw? What could I have done? Like, the women that came forward were my friends. And, you know, we talked about stuff and then it was a lot of like, why wouldn't they have confided in me? You know, why, you know, or did they? And I didn't like hear it and sort of, you know, John's been like a brother to me for 20 years at that point. So even just, you know, going through the stages of grief, because that's what it was, was really difficult. And nobody teaches you or prepares you how to do that. No, that... It was so above and beyond. And just to clarify for, if you're listening, so Willa Jean was birthed within John's group, mm-hmm. but um, under Kelly's control, so she had con- control of that restaurant, but it was part and parcel of this larger group that was, um, you know, under, under fire. Um, and where everyone's affected. You know, I mean, it's not like anyone gets to like talk about getting up and going to work and feeling good about it. Mm -hmm. You get up and go to work and you just have so many questions in your head. It's so cloudy. Right. You know? Yeah. And we tried to be as transparent. I tried to be as transparent as I could with my own process with my, with my cooks and my, my staff and sort of like, this is what's happening. Here's how I feel about it. This is where I am. This is why I'm talking about it or not talking about it. You guys are free to ask questions. You're free to talk. Like, whatever you guys need, I'm here for it. And did people have a... I mean, did Some people, people did, a, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, like, you know, if customers ask, what do we say? And da, 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 I'm like, I'm not giving you your opinion. Like, that's not my place. And so learning how to navigate that just as, you know, if people would ask. And very, very few people did because... You know, we did such a good job, I think, me and, and my team branding that restaurant as something in and of itself that people very easily did not associate us with with that behavior or part of that. So, And now it's been, how long has it been since? Almost two years. Almost two years, yeah. really. Yeah. Wow. And um, when you look back at that time do you is are those feelings still fresh from yeah it's all fresh enough that I don't I'm not reflective about it quite yet I'm still like 
um, it took so long to get forward moving conversations and forward moving action items and sort of figure it, figure it out that now like I'm focused, I'm looking forward, making it happen. And I'm sure there's a point where I'll, I'll be reflective on that time and what does it look like? How could it have been better? Like all that stuff, but I'm not quite there yet. And what's your feeling about, um, the men who in the, in our industry who have, you know, um, been pushed out of their businesses, but actually still profit from them. I mean, do you have an opinion about it from the industry perspective, as opposed to like the personal, um, from an industry perspective, I think they should all divest, frankly. Um, and I think it's easy to say, it's really easy to say that from a public standpoint of not being like caught up in the nuances of like what's happening and what's, what's accurate, what's not like, what's just media being media, what's being, you know, picked up here and exaggerated and, you know, like not, I'm sure you saw a lot of that because it's being in it, it's like a whole new perspective and there's no way I can like tell you what that is or teach you how, like without going through everything and, um, you know, it's, I know that when you're inside of something, you actually know the facts and then you see what's reported until you've had that experience. Mm -hmm. You can't imagine, I mean, although it's America today, so maybe you can't imagine, but in things that are, um, seem more personal and and smaller, how disparate the truth and the fact, the reports are. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like the, the things and the, the things that the general public or like the people that are reading sort of like latch onto and like, you know, the, the selectiveness of outrage from a public perspective is one of the most interesting things I've witnessed out of this whole thing. And like, how would you describe that? Like, um, I'm going to use April as a example. And, you know, we're talking about April Bloomfield, who is a chef Mm -hmm. at the spotted pig where Ken Friedman, um, was her business partner and was, um, again, part of me too. And very clearly, um, had been abusive to the staff mm-hmm. and um, kicked out of his business. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about her story and how it was, how it was, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs about Ken and his behavior, Mario's talked about, and April was mentioned min- minimally, but April became the story. And... You know, I think about it in, like, if I were in her shoes, which I kind of was, my name just doesn't happen to be April, so it was a much smaller shoe. Um, what was her experience in that? And her experience since then, to me, says she was afraid of losing everything. And she was probably put in a position where that's exactly what she thought and knew would happen. And so now you have Ken Friedman, who continues to profit off of all these restaurants and you know build more and do whatever he's doing and have people come to his rescue so to speak and april has in fact like lost her restaurants and you know lost a tremendous amount of money in trying to legally separate herself and she lost everything exactly what she was afraid of while he is still there and the attacks on April, I, like, I never worked with her, and she and I have never really talked about it. I'm sure she and herself feels like she could have done more, should have done more. Uh, like, I feel the same way, and, you know, I'm not in her in her position, but, you know, the fact that people aren't attacking Ken Friedman the way that they attacked April and they choose to be outraged that a woman didn't help versus being outraged that a woman should have been in the position to help. Um, it's a, it's a real challenge for me to sort of navigate that and like how I feel about it and how I would deal with it. And it's, it takes up a lot of my brain. Well, I can also imagine because you're comparing shoe sizes, but, but, (laughs) but, but in, in some ways, um, you are in, she, April, is in a more similar situation mm-hmm. to where you were than probably 
anyone else yeah. you will ever know. Yep. In a I really, hope, I really hope that's true. You know, right? That's, <laughs> that's um, in a very particular, specific point in time, and because of the way your business was set up, mm-hmm. um, your ability to move forward and mm-hmm. look forward, right, um, was stronger. That's yeah. a bad sentence. I mean, I, I mean, tremendous number of mistakes to learn from to sort of, you know learn what not to do and what leadership shouldn't look like. And, you know, going and working for Shuna and coming back and sort of like starting to see the culture for what it was and understand like what impact that made on me and the people working for me. Um, and my ability to sort of like, like pivot into creating a space that I thought that the restaurant should be. Um, and you know, that came with a lot of work and a lot of self work and a lot of therapy and a lot of, you know, brainstorming with people much smarter than I'll ever be about how to, can you do it? What does it look like? And how does it sustain itself? Because even at Willa Jean, we go into sort of like survival mode sometimes because we're so busy and short staffed and everybody's calling out or this happened or that happened. And we like the natural instinct is to go back to that. And we fight it. Like we've been fighting it the last couple of weeks because we've been so incredibly busy so you don't have time potentially to take the care or to mm-hmm. um with the team right what do you feel like the, the leadership lessons cuz now you've had um some things you really don't want to be you've mm-hmm. had some things of what you really admire mm-hmm. and you've had your own experience now like mm-hmm. when you weave together those three things um where is it like what do you think the most important key to leadership is transparency and communication well, that was an easy answer. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, you know, like, you have to go through that time. Like, you have to earn respect, and that's always going to be a key of leadership. Like, I've seen, you know, chefs or cooks walk in the kitchen and just, like, demand it without. Like, I will never, like, I am far less important to my business than my line cooks, than my dishwashers. Like, me being there or not doesn't affect the hostesses. Like, they are the impact of my business. They are the faces. They like, they create the culture. They, you know, spread the gospel, Will Jean, if you will. Um, and I don't act like, I don't behave like, I don't set the standard where I walk in and things should be different. Or that they should address me in a certain way. I don't like to be called ma'am. We've dealt with that a couple times but oh really because yeah. your team because it's the south and yeah. people just yeah. call you ma'am yeah yeah because i worked in kitchens for 20 years where i was ma'am and not chef even though i was the chef of the kitchen and it drove me nuts and so i decided to own it and name my foundation yes ma'am but i didn't know that's where it came from yeah but i don't i don't i still don't like to be called it but um my my presence or my role at willa jean is so less than the people doing the work. I mean, I don't. I I have to believe that is very self-effacing and not one hundred percent true, right? Because you're you're the the face of it. You are are the direction and the vision and the recipes mm-hmm. are yours. No. But you're, what you're saying is you want to give them agency over their day and not 100%. take it from them as if just because you do those things that they're not right. important. Right. So um, you're sharing the wealth. Well, but if they don't have to see my work, then I've done my job. Is how I feel about it. Um, right. So I've gotten to meet on this trip, your best friend or one of your best friends, you yep. have a, a few, um, named Martine, yep. who is so double, triple awesome. Yeah, I agree. And I want to know how someone who's as busy as you are, mm-hmm. uh, cause you're just describing like, you're so in it. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you develop friendships that last when you have no time? <laughs> You make time and that's like the, the boundaries and prioritizing like that whole, like you're not busy or you're not too busy to do it. You're not prioritizing in the right way is something I'm sort of living and breathing lately. Uh, Martina and I met like six or seven years ago and she lived in San Francisco at the time. And so when she was in town, we just connect and then, you know, we would text or I would happen to go to San Francisco for something. So we'd meet up and, um, so like we just, can drop in and it doesn't matter if I haven't seen her in three days or three weeks or three months. Cause sometimes that happens like 
we drop in right where we are. I just, I love it. I do, um, I do too. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Everyone should have a best friend like Martine. Yeah. Um, so there, I'm trying to learn from my guests. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to ask you to teach me something okay. that's a good life skill, but it has to be in words because we can't show anybody on this. Sure. Pod. Great. What's it going to be? What are you going to teach me? A life skill. Yeah. I'm... Give me an example. Um, so, sure. Um, <laughs> Priya, Priya Krishna uh-huh. taught me how to fold pants because she, her mother had worked at a store where she had to fold pants mm-hmm. and she taught the girls, her daughters, to fold mm-hmm. pants. So Priya had to fold a hundred pairs of pants. Uh-huh. So I had her teach me how to fold pants. It's just this weird thing that I had learned and I knew she had done. Sure. And then um, I spoke with um, a horsewoman. Mm-hmm. And she taught me how to approach a horse, which is kind of extraordinary because it's really how you should approach a human. I mean, there's some specifics that are different, like mm-hmm. you stare at its stomach, which I wouldn't stare at your stomach if I was approaching you. <laughs> I try not to, but um, but you know her way of approaching and there's there are steps. It's so it's very much like uh-huh. a recipe, huh. and so these are like little recipes for life that I'm collecting. Okay. But you could also teach me a recipe. Oh, you do that enough. Um, I am going to bring this full circle and teach you how to cast a fly fishing rod. Amazing. How about I'm, that? I'm totally ready for that. Are you that. right-handed or left-handed? Left. All right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, you're going to... Let me think of how to put this into words. So the most important thing you do when you, when you cast a, a fly rod is... You don't break your wrist. So you have to keep it really stiff. It's all in your elbow. Um, and the the biggest lesson, the thing I fight with all the time, is the amount of time that you, when you bring your elbow up from your side, up to the side of your head with the rod in it, you have to say a word at least as long as the word cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> because you're... You hold the rod in front of you, your elbow's at 90 degrees, you bring it up to your right beside your face, and you have to say the word cheeseburger, because you have the line is coming behind you, and you have to give it the time to get behind you before you go forward back to 90 degrees. That's an amazing lesson, and it included food. Yeah, so (laughs) so that's awesome. Thank you. And um, the last question of the show is: I always like to pay it forward to women who don't get as much acknowledgement in Mm -hmm. this um, community and the world at large. So, is there a a woman in our industry who you want to pay it forward to, who you believe to be uh, should be better known, and uh, why? There's so many. You can pick one, two. So many. Um, I'm going to pick... Um, Christina has levy banking in New Orleans. Um, she has been doing a pop-up for a while. She just got a brick-and-mortar space. Um, so she'll be opening on Magazine Street hopefully any day now. But she... And what's the um, bakery called? Levy. Okay. Like when the levies broke. Levy Baking Company. She hands down makes the best pastries in New Orleans, and I'll say that above myself. She's amazing. And what everybody uh, should know her. Okay, great. What type of pastry? All of them. She does bread. She does a lot of um, like laminated doughs, and I mean, she's been doing it in a little tiny oven in shared space. Like it's incredible what she's doing. Her pies are stunning. She did beautiful king cakes this year. Um, she's phenomenal and she's a phenomenal person also that's trying to do really good in this industry um, on top of that I would pick I wonder about the, the Cajun caviar ladies oh yeah so Cajun caviar ladies um, Amy Wilson um, owns Cajun caviar I think she has three women business partners um, and so they make all the caviar in Louisiana and they go out and get the um, bowfin fish out of the, the bayous and that's what they're using for their caviar it was great it was really fun to taste talk about full circle because mm-hmm. I got to taste some of it last yep. last night here yep. at uh, 
Paws Up Resort in Montana. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me. This has been such an incredible pleasure. Um, thank you for taking taking the a time away from all the things you could be doing here, from <laughs> from fishing to hiking to mountain biking to ATVing. And um, how can people find you uh, on social? Uh, I am Kelly Fields on Instagram or Willie G New Orleans on everything. So, and this is Dana Cowan. I'm. So happy that you're listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing, uh, go subscribe to Speaking Broadly on iTunes, Stitcher, or other places where podcasts can be found. And you know where to find me on social. I'm at Speaking Broadly. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you enjoy your week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.